You have reached a phone call from Paul. Prepare to be entertained and moved. A chat with Neil Gaiman. Part 1. Hello. Hello. This is a phone call from Paul to Neil Gaiman. Hello, Paul. How are you? I am very well. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. I've, I've just had, you know, one of the most intense um, 10 days of my life. And I'm just sort of looking around right now and uh, I'm trying to get back into into life and into work and into 10 days of, of unanswered email and 10 days of unwritten uh, unwritten things. It, it's been strange. What, what, uh, what are you what are you referring to when you when you say these these 10 days that have in a way um, taken you away from from what is at at the the core center of of your usual life so um my wife amanda um, her next door neighbor since she was at the age of nine who became her best friend her adult mentor um her father figure her her advisor um was a a very sweet man named Anthony Martinetti. Um, the, uh, and, and Anthony um, was a, when, when, put it this way, when she very first, uh, when I very first was dating her, the first thing I did was have lunch with Anthony with no idea that this was important and with no idea that if he had shaken his head, she might well have gone in another direction. But I think I read, I read about that in your, in your journal. Exactly. So, um, Anthony, um, about four years ago, was diagnosed with leukemia and uh, told that he had about six months to live. And he's, he had chemo, he went into remission, He came out of remission. He had the bone marrow transplant. He went into remission. Um, everything looked good. And Amanda and I were in England. We were wrapping up a whole lot of stuff in our lives. Um, she was about to record an album with a friend. Uh, I was actually going up to, about to go up to St. Andrews to get an honorary doctorate there. And then I was going to be teaching a masterclass on writing in London. And I was going to have some days writing on the Isle of Skye, which is my, my happy place. Um, and uh, so um, it, it was all, you know, life was, was going just fine. And suddenly we got a call saying Anthony, was uh, the, the leukemia was back and it was really bad. He was in the hospital and he might not have very long to live. And I was in the middle of a meeting with Amanda. I uh, not with Amanda. I was in the middle of a meeting with the American Gods uh, television team, which is going to happen. Uh, 
It is going to happen. It was with uh, the Stars Network. Yeah. And so these were you know, Brian Fuller and Michael Green, who were the showrunners, and the guys from Fremantle Media. We were meeting all of these uh, TV companies from around the world who were interested in, in getting us. And I get a text from Amanda saying, we are on a plane in three hours back to America. And Goodness. I had to wrap up the meeting for, or just basically walk out on the meeting apologetically, leap into a cab, pack up our stuff. We had a race against time to make it to Heathrow. We got on the last two seats on the plane. Um, in, in true form, we were right at the back and I was in the middle. And you we made separa- it. You mean separated in the plane? Oh, we t- we had, yes, we actually talked people into letting us sit together with the incredibly pregnant Amanda. Um, Which is so, something else in your life. Exactly. So we, we made it back. And we got back, actually, I think just in time. Um, we got back on Thursday night. We saw him on Friday morning. And he still knew who we were and could sort of talk. And he got to put his hand on uh, on the baby's belly and he uh, on Amanda's belly and touched the baby. And, and it was beautiful. And it was it, I was so glad that we were there. Um, and. Uh, And Neil, does this, um, you, you, you talk about this experience, you know, nearly moment by moment. Uh, and I'm, I'm sort of following you as, as you're going through the, the various spaces you, you inhabited to, to come back to him in the final moment. Is this, is this an experience that has been much of your experience in life? You know, um, There's a lovely Stephen Sondheim line about if life were only moments, you'd never know you'd had one. Right. Um, right. You know, the, the, we every now and again you wind up in in hyper reality. You wind up in those moments that are just out of you are dragged out of the world that you live in into something much more real, much more immediate. In this case, absolutely, you know, the intertwining of life and death. Two days later, Anthony was let go, sent home from the hospital to die. Um, He died on the Monday night, and we were all there. Um, His his close friends, his wife, um, we were around him when he died. And Amanda was holding Anthony when he breathed his last breath. And I was holding the baby. I had my hands yeah. on the swell of her belly. And the, the strange interplay of life and death, mm. the, um, the, the, the Eddie Campbell, um, the wonderful cartoonist and writer, um, did a book once called The Dance of Lifey Death, L-I-F-E-Y, Lifey Death. And that's the dance that we're all in, and it is the dance of lifey death. But but we forget it, and because mostly you don't need to look around and go, this is the dance of lifey death. And suddenly, 
you're in it, you are in the hyperreal, there is nothing there but life, there is nothing there but death, there is nothing there but the wheel, the circle, the spiral, the feeling that it just goes round and it's and it's good and it's fine and this is the universe. And when you when you when you say um it's good um it's because it in in a way it intensifies all the other experiences we have but in some way those experiences are not really lesser i mean i i often think when i when i think about you that for you reading is one of the the deepest ways of relating to some of the deepest issues which would in, of course include life and death they would include, they would include that in a way that um w would not make make reading or thinking or writing any less real than all the rest I definitely don't think that, that reading, thinking, or writing is less real. I think it's it's so much a, um, a vital part of the whole thing. And also it's the way that we communicate. Well, the um, we learn also the way to, to, I mean, you know, thinking of Montaigne or, or for that matter, Plato, um, we, we've, we learn to philosophize in order to learn how to die. There is something, uh, you know, there, exactly. is, there is something there, no? Ursula Le Guin said, um, as it pointed out, that there have been cultures, great grand cultures, who didn't have the wheel. Hmm. But there have been no human societies that didn't have stories. Oh, gosh, this is great. And, uh, I've, never, and somebody, I've never heard that. That's fantastic. And I thought, that is so true. And I, I reposted it on Twitter and somebody said, ah, but the Piraha people of Brazil didn't have stories. The Amazon rainforest. And I went and I, I thought, that's so strange. And I spent the morning researching the Piraha people of the Amazon rainforest and learned that while they didn't have fictional stories because the way that their culture worked, they could not talk about things they had not experienced. They had stories. They, had, they would tell uh, they would tell each other stories about things that existed. Tell each other stories about um, about real things, um, but they were still stories. And it's that storytelling urge, the urge to explain the world to each other, to 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 give to give events shape. Um, the the delight and the knowledge that life only uh, you know the, the 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 famous quote about life only makes sense looking back on it. Right, the, um, the Kierkegaard life that we we live forward, but we understand backwards. We understand backwards. Kind of a retrospective illumination. But the truth is, we actually don't. I mean, oh. Kierkegaard—it's it, it, a lovely statement. But the truth is, we don't understand because we're in it. Right. And nobody in a story gets to really look around and understand the story. The joy of of our lives is that actually where they make sense from is not only afterwards, but from the outside. 
And it's that point where somebody can say, ah, so so so-and-so, you know, his discovery of this changed the world. So-and-so who had this life where he thought he was a failure, actually this is what he brought to the world. This person made this happen and suddenly you take a step outside. And that's, 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 and you understand. Um, You understand how things fit in. You understand the shape of the story. You understand who were the heroes and who were the villains, who were the supporting characters, who were the love interests. And you also understand, of course, that that's not true. That's a lie. Because you just have to take one step to the left and now all the love interests change and the supporting characters change. And the hero changes. He is... Here's the story in which it's Charles Darwin, who was the guy who discovered uh, evolution and who did this and who did that. Then you take one step to the left and no, now you're talking about the other guy who, who went out and kind of figured it out but never got famous. And now he's your hero. You know, um, I, w- I was wondering when, when you were talking about the cycle and Amanda holding the hand the hand of your your friend and you holding Amanda's and your new baby uh, about to be born, that sometimes death can make make the world seem sort of irrelevant. Um, you you feel you know I often, I'm often reminded of that Sartre line where he says "L'homme est une passion inutile." Man is a useless passion. Mm-hmm. And and yet, in 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 some way, uh, these moments also, however terrible they are, heighten everything. They, they it's, heighten. it's the heightening. I I love the fact that they throw everything briefly into. And they give it all shape and they give it meaning. It's the fact that actually, I had ten days where I. What became suddenly very important to me were people and human relationships. I really didn't mind the fact that I dumped my email for 10 days. That was fine. I didn't really mind the fact that I'd walked out on meetings, on an honorary doctorate and so on and so forth. I minded the fact that I'd walked out on um, a friend of mine's 21st birthday party that I'd really been looking forward to going to, I because that was a human thing. Um, I loved the fact that once, during the time that Anthony was dying and afterwards, and even now, I find myself filled with a much greater appreciation for small things, for the patterns that, leave, that, 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 that raindrops are making on the leaves. Uh, for the color green, for all of the different color greens. I'm, I'm talking to you right now in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at a friend's house, uh, just standing at the back door with the, the back door open. It was raining all morning and raining hard, but it's stopped raining now. And I can see a thousand different shades of green. The, from from all of the, uh, the grapevines and the arbor, next door to creeping things to evergreens to 
beautiful pine trees, oak trees, deciduous trees. It's, it's sort of a tree paradise around it's, a little, it's tiny amazing little green how, park. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, um, uh, how trees come up so often in these moments. I, I think... Um, I think so much about when my mother was very ill and then and then died about 19 months ago. The one thing she was missing in her last years were trees. She always mm -hmm. wanted to be near trees, and I don't know if if you if you know this poem, which I find extraordinary, that that Clive James wrote called Japanese Maple. Yes, I, I I read it. I thought it was beautiful, and I'm fascinated by the re the reinvention of Clive James as he discusses his mortality. It's amazing. I mean, um, you know, he 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 because when you say that, it's because Clive James was someone so different for you, right? Yeah, Clive James was someone who I, well, I grew up. When Clive James is a, a figure on television making fun of, you know, foreign commercials and things. So he was a, he was a trivial, slightly smarmy Australian who made fun of television on television. Um, and then later I realized that, ah, but he was also this, this very, very smart, funny memoirist. And he was the author of, of one poem, at least, that I, I thought would probably outlive him, that uh, the book of my enemy has been remaindered. Yes. Um, and uh, the book of my enemy has been remaindered is so funny, so brilliant, so wonderful, and so incredibly true. Just here is a tiny spotlight on the human condition, the triumph of one author, over an author who either was getting better reviews and better sales or, or possibly, you know, wrote a bad review of you sometime in that small, weird, incestuous literary world, which I've, I've managed never to become part of by, I guess, because I came out of comic books and it was, it was never and science fiction and fantasy, so I was never really enough part of that world, but I recognized it, and the joy of, you know, the book of my enemy has been remainders. But that was, in my mind, Clive James. He was somebody who was facile, funny, um, observant, but not deep, and then suddenly we get into end-of-life Clive James. And that poem was astounding. And I remember reading it, I think, in The Guardian. Maybe in The Guardian. It was published in America in um, a year ago on, on September 15th in uh, The New Yorker. In which case, I probably read it in The New Yorker possibly linked to by The Guardian, because Lord alone knows how you, it, it is the strange joy of moving around the web, is you follow links and you aren't often even aware of where you wound up. Well, it's a new, um, a new form of being in, in the world of dictionaries, isn't it? It absolutely is. Um, you click and you move, and you click and you move. And But reading that, and, and it reminded me of nothing so much, the only thing I, I thought comparable 
to it um, was, oh, um, I, I can't believe I've done that. Well, I can, because it's very easy to forget things, especially when you're my age. Um, I, I know the feeling, I trust me. Wonderful English playwright and TV playwright. Um, died of cancer. Um, hated Rupert Murdoch and called his cancer Rupert. Dennis Potter. There, there we you go. have it, yeah. Uh, Dennis Potter was interviewed by Melvin Bragg oh, right. for a, and it was a South Bank show special uh, done basically by Potter in his final days coming to the studio with a bottle of morphine, which he would drink from, and talking about um, talking about dying of cancer and talking about the world that he was in right now, talking about trying to write his last two plays. Um, and uh, you know, he was famous for having written things like The Singing Detective. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, um, uh, Neil, that this play comes to your mind now with what you've been experiencing for the last 10 days. It's as if literature in some way and the references we look for, and you were looking for that references, um, are, are, are signposts and, and, and um, lifesavers. So let me. Even when what they are describing is obviously something that you've just experienced and Amanda has experienced as tremendously painful. So I love the fact that given the, the nature of the web, I walked over to my computer and, 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 you know, a minute ago I was struggling to remember Dennis Potter's name and now I have the exact quote in tell front me, of me, tell me that I was thinking of. So it's going to be a little bit long, go I'm ahead. afraid. Go, Take go, a right, break. go right ahead. There's nothing better than hearing you read. I've experienced it. Go right ahead. We all, we're the one animal that knows that we're going to die. And yet we carry on paying our mortgages, doing our jobs, moving about, behaving as though there's eternity in a sense. And we forget or tend to forget that life can only be defined in the present tense. It is, is, and it is now only. I mean, as much as we would like to call back yesterday and indeed yearn to and ache to, sometimes we can't. It's in us, but we can't actually. It's not there in front of us. However predictable tomorrow is, and unfortunately for most people, most of the time it's too predictable. They're locked into whatever situation they're locked into. Even so, no matter how predictable it is, there's the element of the unpredictable, of the you don't know. The only thing you know for sure is the present tense. And that nowness becomes so vivid that almost in a perverse sort of way, I'm almost serene, you know? I can celebrate life. Below my window in Ross, when I'm working in Ross, for example, there at this season, the blossom is out in fall now, there in the west early. It's a plum tree. It looks like apple blossom, but it's white. And looking at it, instead of saying, oh, that's nice blossom, last week, looking at it through the window when I'm writing, I see it is the whitest, frothiest, blossomest blossom that there ever could be. 
and I can see it. Things are both more trivial than they ever were and more important than they ever were, and the difference between the trivial and the important doesn't seem to matter. But the nowness of everything is absolutely wondrous, and if people could see that, you know, there's no way of telling you. You have to experience it, but the glory of it, if you like, the comfort of it, the reassurance... Not that I'm interested in reassuring people, bugger that. The fact is, if you see the present tense, boy, do you see it. And boy, can you celebrate it. What does that make you want to do? Uh, being me, of course, it immediately makes me want to write about plum trees and plum blossom and plant plum trees and experience plum blossom. And, just, and it makes me want to work harder. Which also sounds very strange. It, it's that glorious, you know, everything, um, it comes down to memento mori. You know, what are we going to scroll on the wall while we're here? What are we going to draw on on the wall? What trace do we it's leave? Be, what trace do we leave? What's on the stone? I, I was walking with Amanda yesterday. Yesterday was the memorial service yeah, yeah, yeah. for Anthony, and it was beautiful, and it was wonderful, and tears were shed, and there was laughter, and it was a marvelous thing. And afterwards, and it was at, at Anthony's brother's house, but afterwards, Amanda, we had a little time to kill, and she drove us to the local graveyard, and we walked around the graveyard. Um... And there was a moment for me that was both funny and moving and tragic and encapsulated all human life because we passed in Lexington Graveyard the grave of a family. And they had, as is common in Lexington Graveyard, the, the family name carved on a big step as you go up into these, this little area of graves. And the name of the family was Winning. W-A-W-N-I-N-G. And I, and, and I looked in the grave, the, the stone on the graveyard, oh. it said Winning. And the irony was so beautiful. And it was like, oh, Winning. Yes, of course. The, the perfect sad hashtag of, of two years ago and winning and no, nobody won, nobody lost. You're in a graveyard and that's great. Let us celebrate the day. <laughs>